Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Shayla Farzan. From presidential campaigns to unrest in Ferguson to the Supreme Court, Domenico Montanaro's journalistic endeavors have covered a lot of ground. He's now the lead political editor for NPR based in Washington. He's been in St. Louis this week as a special guest at St. Louis Public Radio's annual dinner last night, and he joins me now in studio. Domenico, welcomes to the program. Hey there, thanks for having me. Apologize for my voice. <laughs> no problem. Um, so. You know, there's been a real onslaught of political news lately, um, you know, especially over the past couple weeks with the release of the Mueller report. And I wonder, you know, how does your team at NPR balance covering the day's news while also avoiding news fatigue among your listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's hard to kind of avoid the news fatigue. It's it's uh, definitely shown up. We've seen it, you know, in the first year and a half or so of the Trump presidency, people were really tuning in. They were they were clicking on stories. Um, and we're starting to see that sort of level off a little bit, which I think is pretty indicative of the fact that it's just a repeated cycle of a lot of the same kinds of stories that then don't seem to move the needle very much at all. Um, and I think that some people are, are starting to tune out a little bit on that. But, you know, things when they're impactful and they're important, we're going to try the best we can to at least take something complicated, make that make it understandable, hopefully giving enough context for people um, who might, um, you know, otherwise be confused about what's happening out there, especially in Washington. So not necessarily covering every single tweet, every incremental step, but kind of giving a broader analysis? Yeah, I mean, we we talked about Trump's tweets very early on uh, when he became president, and we weren't even sure if he was going to tweet, you know. So we built this tweet annotator where we could pick out which tweet we wanted to look at and give some context to it. So we've done some of that. Um, and we try not to be led around by the tweets. I think that's really important. And you know, you want to have a lane where you're doing original reporting. Your reporters are explaining a lot of things that um, you know people might not be paying attention to. Think about regulations and uh, other items, uh, drug pricing, for example, China's role in the United States. We're really trying to focus, uh, you know, in original lanes, but we also have to be on top of the news too. And also kind of balancing with uh, perspective coverage, thinking about the 2020 presidential election. You know, I wonder as we're kind of heading into that election season, you know, what do you think or what do you see as some of the, the key issues that voters are concerned about now? Yeah, it's hard because these 2021, 20, however many Democrats are now in the race, um, they don't disagree on a whole lot, right? I mean, it's kind of what happens. I mean, Republicans in 2016, there were 17 of them who ran. They were all basically in the same direction. And it becomes so much about like a popularity contest in some ways for voters because most voters aren't that engaged. I mean, when you ask people if they know policy depth of uh, this candidate or that, they don't really know. They sort of like you know, are looking at these people, thin slicing them, figuring out who they kind of like personally, and that that's the direction they go. And what we hear from Democratic voters in particular is they want to beat President Trump. So their number one priority is figuring out who's most electable. And electability is really fungible. You don't really – it's hard to measure. You know, I have people ask me, who do you think is the most electable? And I mean, it's, it's sort of – you don't know until you know, right, who can win. So, you know, there are obviously certain candidates who are a little bit more progressive. They're trying to push 
Uh, but really, Bernie Sanders is the main candidate who's trying to push the party to be a little bit more democratic socialist. In his view, his ideas have become more mainstream within the party. Uh, they were seen as more fringy probably in 2015, and now they're not. Uh, and you have another wing of the party that still wants to be progressive but also bite off what it can chew, so a little more pragmatic progressive approach from some folks. Um, so, you know, the issues of uh, President Trump, obviously he is the backdrop to the entire election. It's his reelect. So it is a referendum on the president. But then it's figuring out what the priorities are for Democratic voters and independent voters and what's going to move them. And, you know, Democrats in 2018 focused on uh, health care as a main kitchen table issue. And that's sort of the struggle within the party. Do they, how far do they go down the impeachment road and thinking and talking about President Trump versus focusing on those kitchen table issues? Yeah, it seems like the Democratic Party is really doing some soul searching, trying to figure out who they are, who they're going to be in the future. For sure. I think that that's, you know, unquestionably what happens when your party's out of power and you lack leadership and there isn't that one person who's leading your party to kind of get behind, right? I mean, Republicans would certainly be a different party if President Trump weren't president. I mean, if Jeb Bush was president, I'm pretty sure that most of the people who uh, now are supporting President Trump would be a different would be differently supporting Jeb Bush, right? Or whoever that person was. You know, so much of the party's you know soul it takes on who their leader is, and that's what happens when you're out of power. You don't have that individual leader who you can sort of glom onto for their direction. So the party is wrestling with how far it wants to go, and what we've seen over a generation or two is a backlash to a backlash to a backlash of various presidents. I mean, if you think about there is no Barack Obama without the Iraq War and George W. Bush, and there's probably no Donald Trump without Barack Obama. You couldn't think of somebody more opposite of Barack Obama than Donald Trump. So, you know, you sit there and wonder, well, what does that mean for 2020? Does it mean a restoration project in the way Joe Biden wants it to be? Or does it mean an even steeper backlash to elect a black woman or the first openly gay man to be president. Uh, you know, all of that will be figured out over the stretch of the primary. But boy, it's a long time. Yeah, I mean, when we're thinking about uh, those backlashes, it seems like we've kind of seen this increasing polarization in U.S. politics. I mean, that's not going to come as a revelation to anyone. Um, you know, just when you think that Congress can't get more divided, it, it does. And so I wonder, you know, do you think that this is the new normal or are you feeling hopeful that there could be, you know, this kind of next wave of bipartisanship in the future? Huh. Uh, I'm not hopeful about bipartisanship. I think most change has happened when people have numbers. You know, even if you think about the 1964 Great Society measures that Lyndon Johnson was able to get through, he was only able to do it because he was a Southern Democrat and could get Southern Democrats on board. You know, I, I, you know, Barack Obama was only able to get health care passed because he had 60 votes. You know, it's very rare that there's some kumbaya bipartisanship that gets something passed. You know, people talk about the 1980s and Social Security reform. And sure, people can sort of pick things off. But if I hear another thing about Infrastructure Week, it's going to be the worst week ever because nothing ever gets done when it comes to that, right? There's a lot that needs to be done in the country. But I think so much more has been accomplished at local levels in trying to get things accomplished when Congress, when it's supposed to be set up in divided government to get together, the opposite has happened. 
and you're seeing a lot of fisticuffs. And, you know, really, if you want to make change, it's going to happen at the ballot box. Yeah, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about you. I know that the, this is something oh that journalists really hate to do yeah, sometimes. Really. Yeah, but you're so you're supervising a team at NPR. And I wonder, you know, looking back over the past couple years, what kinds of reporting have you or your team done that you're particularly proud of? I'm really proud that we've gotten out into the country. And, you know, when some people talk about the criticism of the media, you know, and not seeing Donald Trump coming or something like that, you know, I don't buy that for NPR's coverage. I mean, I think we really did get out there. You heard from those voices. Um, you heard anecdotally the strength of his support. Um, I really like the texture that our reporters bring to the table. I think about people like Don Gagne, you know, goes out there and really tries to scratch the surface, get below um sort of the commodity stories. We try to think in a big think way of uh, demographic change, um, you know, big themes of the election. And I'm, I'm really proud of the group of people for the size that we are. Um, we're very undersized compared to, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post or something like that. And, you know, do such great stories and great work along the way. Yeah. So you've been in St. Louis this week, but uh, you're not actually a stranger to this area. You uh, you actually spent some time here. I think it was back in 2014 when you were covering the Ferguson protests for PBS NewsHour. Well, I wasn't here doing that, but I was coordinating our coverage from Washington with NewsHour and, uh, you know, checked in a lot with St. Louis Public Radio um, and people like Rachel Lippman, who did so much great reporting. Um, and we had a lot of people on the streets and we had reporters here who we really, you know, I mean, there were hours that we did uh, on the show. So, yeah, and you know, I've been here a couple times because of the debates, you know, Washington University hosting so many of those presidential debates. So I have been able to get out here a bunch, um, uh, never able to get up into the arch, but I've been close to it at least. <laughs> we'll have to do that on your next trip yeah, then. Right. <laughs> so um, I do still want to talk a little bit more about you. I wonder... You know, could you tell me a little bit about your your path into journalism? Like, when did you first realize that you were interested in journalism and specifically covering politics? Well, what's funny about that is I started as a finance major uh, at Baruch College in Manhattan, and I was working as a teller in a bank three days a week, and I was going to classes three days a week. And I grew up in Queens, and I thought, God, this is the worst. Like, I have the rest of my life to work. You know, like, I, I want green grass and Frisbees and sororities. Like, I want to see something that's like college life. <laughs> so I transferred and went to the University of Delaware undergrad. Um, and I decided if I was going to do that, I was going to do the things I like. And what I liked was English. I liked books and reading and writing. And I liked sports. I played a lot of sports in high school. So I became a sports writer. And I worked at the college paper probably like 50 hours a week. Um, we did really good work, uh, won a bunch of awards, and um, I covered the Gore-Bradley primary debate at the Apollo Theater in 2000. And, you know, I, I always was kind of a political junkie and didn't quite realize it. And I remember one of the stories I wrote, one of my professors had been a CNN reporter, and he was just like, this is, he's like, I know you like sports, but this is probably one of the better things I've ever read from you. And I was first like kind of offended, you know, like <laughs> my goal in life was to work for the New York Daily News and like cover the Mets. <laughs> yeah. And I was, uh, but I realized, I kind of realized what he was saying, you know, that that there was something to it. I wound up working for the Asbury Park Press in New Jersey as a print reporter after that, covered municipal, um, local municipalities, learned what a budget was, you know, why a town would argue over a $45,000 aerator in a pond. 
And it really was a good microcosm for what um, was to come. I actually wound up teaching high school English for three years, um, you know, decided to make the change into that lucrative career. Uh, and then I decided, though, I wanted to go back to grad school. I went to grad school, uh, saw the changing landscape of journalism, learned how to shoot and edit uh, report uh, on air. And uh, I wound up covering the 2006 election for CBS News. I did their research for their briefing book. Uh, and I was really into all the house races, loved all that granularity, learned what the country looked like and seemed like uh, by looking at each of those places, studying the demography of those places. And then wound up having to move to D.C., got hired on at NBC News as a researcher in their political unit. Uh, and things just sort of progressed from there. I went to PBS NewsHour after that, spent seven years at NBC, another year at NewsHour, uh, and then moved over to NPR when we were working on 2016 coverage. And here I am. So when you say you were a researcher, what does that mean? Uh, so at TV networks, you know, you have people who are essentially helping on-air folks, um, you know, with their live shots, with um, interviews. And I, you know, was kind of do it all, you know, worked. We, I loved being in a political unit where you help all these different shows, you know, whether it was Meet the Press, MSNBC, CNBC, whatever it was. And people would come to me and say, when's the last time this has ever happened? You know, I was kind of like, let me Google that for you. But like knowing which sources to use. And I, I got really good at it. And, uh, you know, my boss wound up doing a lot more on-air stuff. And I got sort of pushed into uh, needing to do some of his MSNBC hits and was like, all right, I guess I'll try this. And it was really difficult, I felt like. And uh, my heart was pounding out of my chest. And it was hard to realize how to be yourself on air. I think that's one of the most difficult transitions to make. But honestly, teaching kids was uh, probably the best on-air preparation that I've had because uh, you know, you're held accountable for every word you say when you're dealing with children and their parents. And you say one wrong thing, they're going to, you know, clamp down on you justifiably. And same thing on air. If you were to say something um, that offended someone, uh, you know, or didn't take into account the fairest, strongest arguments on both sides, then, you know, you're going to be called to account for that too. Yeah. High school students, tough critics, right? Yeah. They smell fear. <laughs> So we talked a little bit about, you know, news fatigue among news consumers, but that's also something that really affects journalists, right? Like that this issue of burnout. And I wonder, you know, is that something that you've dealt with in your career? Yeah, you know, it's hard to feel like what you do every day is life affirming when you're covering politics and you 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 know, I really believe that politics is the art of the possible. That people get into politics for the right reasons, that they want to make change in their communities, that they want to do the right thing. And then it's easy to get cynical when you see the corruptibility of it, you know, and you see people working against each other just solely for political reasons. And I think that that's one of the most difficult things when you feel like that's what, you know, needs to be done in the country is for people to work together to figure out how to work together. And when that doesn't happen, it makes it certainly feel like, you know, what is the point of what we're doing here? And then I get so much good feedback from our listeners who will say, you know, thank you so much for explaining this really complicated thing. And really, that's my motto has always been taking the complicated and making it understandable for regular people. Yeah. 
one other question for you, and this I have to apologize because this is a big one, um, which is, uh, you know, where do you see the field of journalism going in the future? Like, do you see any big changes on the horizon? Well, I mean, yes, because of technology. I think that it means that we have to be on every platform, be where people are. You know, uh, it's been kind of the beauty of podcasting. Younger people have earbuds in. They might not be listening in their car to the radio. Um, You have to meet people where they are and get them sort of as a gateway drug to understand what NPR or St. Louis Public Radio, what it is, what it means, and what our brand is and meet them where they are. So if that's online, got to be there having content for their phone. I mean, for example, you know, five years ago, I'd say about 60% of our online traffic uh, was coming from people reading on desktops. Now it's reversed. It's about two-thirds coming from people reading on their phones. So when you think about how quickly that's changed. What does that mean for consumption and how are we serving our audience best? You want to make sure that, you know, it's a small thing, but making sure your paragraphs are shorter so that they're not running on and taking up an entire block of text on someone's phone. You know, that's a small granular thing. In a big picture sense, you know, the dissipation of local journalism has been a real problem, the decline of of local newspapers. I think it's a place where why you've seen growth in public radio because people hunger for that kind of smart contextual understanding of what's happening in their communities and you know right now we're strong and we're one of the only uh you know uh sources of that kind of information especially in underserved communities and i think it's a real part of our mission that um, makes me proud to work in npr and work with our member stations Thank you so much for taking the time this morning, Domenico. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I wish I sounded better. <laughs> um, that was Domenico Montanaro, NPR's lead political editor. It's been a pleasure. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. KWMU.